Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. This podcast focuses on the challenges that black men often face when reintegrating into the workforce following incarceration. Within the United States, there are approximately 2.3 million people within prisons, and about 1 million of them are black. In fact, black people are incarcerated at six times the rate of whites, and black men are disproportionately affected by what we have come to understand as mass incarceration. These disparities are direct effects of systemic injustices, including racial profiling, zero tolerance protocols, and a host of policies that criminalize the most marginalized within our society. Following incarceration, black men who are seeking employment are met by several challenges that are detrimental to their success and increase recidivism. However, there are best practices that can be taken to ensure successful integration. I am pleased to be joined by Mushi Jean-Baptiste, a quality assurance manager for the New York City Department of Small Business Services. Mushi, thanks for joining us. Let's start by hearing a little bit more about you and the work that you do. All right. My name is Mushi Jean-Baptiste. I'm what they call a quality assurance manager for the city of New York. I work for an agency called Small Business Services. I ensure that the Workforce One system is following the rules and regulations that is set forth by what's called the WIOA, which is the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act. Um, It was originally called WIA, Workforce Investment Act of 1991. And basically, this is money that's allocated by the federal government to help underemployed and unemployed Americans find work. So within that framework and seeing that we're talking today about black men coming back from incarceration and looking for work, do you find a lot of the folks that are going to these Workforce One centers are in that situation? So there's two components to Workforce One. There's the Workforce One that helps basically everybody, the the universe, unemployed and underemployed New Yorkers. And then there's what's something called Employment Works, which is a, a center designated to help those unemployed and underemployed New Yorkers who have been incarcerated or have some type of interaction with the criminal justice system. And what they do is they empower those persons to, one, answer the conviction question, and then two, they give them a suite of services that will help them become what's called job ready. Job ready meaning that they're they're ready to be employed. So in terms of employment works, there's two different vendors that run it. In the Bronx, um, FedCap runs the Bronx Center, and then in Brooklyn, Grand Associates runs it. Those centers, being that they're run by two different vendors, are run two different ways. So unfortunately, this population will come out of jail, for lack of a better term, and they will, depending on where they are in terms of zip code, that's where they're relegated to go to. So we're friends, right? You live in Manhattan, I I live in Queens. Right? If I live in Queens, I'm relegated to go to the Bronx Center. You live in Manhattan, you're rele- relegated to go to the Brooklyn Center. We talk, you say, man, I get these, these services at the Brooklyn Center and I enjoy it so much, as opposed to, you know, person Y that lives in Queens will say, this, that's what you get? I, don't, I only get X services in the Bronx. So there's like this internal 
issue going on where folks are feeling like they're not getting the services that they should be getting because they're not allowed to go to a specific center. It really highlights some of the barriers that uh, this particular population faces once they leave prison and they're trying to find employment. Not only are these there are these physical barriers, but it seems like what is an unequal distribution of the actual services that are offered. Yeah. What they, what they try to do is, right, so they go to these particular centers, the Bronx and the Brooklyn centers, and they're supposed to get these ancillary services. So now, after the person goes through the, the Bronx suite of services, they're, they're educated on how to answer the conviction question. They're educated on how to present themselves to an employer. They're educated on what an employer can and cannot ask regarding, you know, their, their um, conviction history. And then hopefully with all that education, when they, when they go out into the system, then that particular job seeker should be able to articulate himself to any employer, regardless of background failure or not, and then hopefully get the job that he's looking for. That's the component of what Employment Works does. It has the job order component where it will actually find employers that are background friendly to this actual population. But if there, but if there are certain job seekers who don't fit in that industry that the center's supposed to be looking for, then they go out into the system and then they just go to any center that has the jobs that that's amenable to them so that they can be able to better sell themselves to, the, to any employer. That's kind of like the, the, the thought process around you know the employment works centers. But being that this is only two centers, and let's say each center has maybe like seven personnel, right? But they're serving the whole New York City population of incarcerated individuals, right? So if there's what we call account managers, account managers are the people that connect the job seeker to the employment opportunity. If there's only two account managers at one particular center, those two account managers are supposed to help all the job seekers that are cohorts to that particular center. If that, if, if for a quarter there's maybe like 450 people that they're trying to help, they can't really give, they try, but they can't really give them the handheld one-on-one individual attention mm -hmm. because it's only two of them, right? So that's kind of like one of the, the issues that I think our system and the center has in general. There's just not enough bodies to assist people and if if we have people maybe not all the people are coached up or have the skill set to actually like they may have the skill set to actually be great recruiters mm -hmm. but they don't have the skill set in order to like figure out is this person truly ready to be sitting in front of an employer and and sell themselves right because it's it's basically a weak boot camp of resume, resume workshops, um, interview workshops, ensuring that job seekers have what's called interview attire, depending on what the industry is. If we know that we're working with a population of, of job seekers who have cooking on work history or whatever, they might not have the tools yet, right, because they just came out of incarceration or whatever the case is, so knives and whatever cooks would normally have in their tool belt they don't have that just yet, right? And some of those things may be expensive, maybe they're not. Um, but again, these people don't have jobs, so they don't have the money to get what, what they need. So there's things called community partners that will assist them to get these things, right? But all that takes time. Everything's taking time. Now, mind you, if an individual like, as myself just came out of incarceration last week, I need a job last week. But the services that we're offering to them might be free, might be great, but again, everything takes time. So now, me being out of work for a week, I'm supposed to devote a whole week to this training, 
but I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the here and the now. All right, I'm giving a week to this training. They are providing me Metro card fare or whatever, but where's my next meal coming from? If I want some ancillary money to like hang out or whatever the case is, where's that coming from? I can't, I can't start interviewing for any cook positions because I don't have the, the utensils. I don't have the quote unquote interview attire, whether it be a suit, a jacket and tie or a smock and you know, slacks. Those things will come to me, you know, but again, as the individual looking for the job, I'm not, I'm not interested in the will come. I'm interested in, in the now. And I mean, it sounds like there are so many challenges. And just to to highlight a few that you mentioned, one is the effects of that traumatic experience in many ways of being incarcerated and then being immediately thrust back into the community and expected not only to act accordingly, quote unquote, but also survive while you're waiting on these services that may take weeks, months. It's a tricky situation, and I'm assuming that's what really contributes to recidivism. Yeah, very much so, because speaking of recidivism, you have individuals, depending on what the crime is, more than likely the crime is associated with what they're, what they're an expert in, right? So let's say it's, it's a white-collar crime. This person is an expert in numbers, did something in that field or whatever the case is, so now they can never get a job in that field. Right, but their expert their expertise is in that field. So what do they do now? The Employment Work Center is gonna teach the individual how to answer that question in an employer interview, mm-hmm. but the Employment Work Center is also not going to usher that person to those type of jobs, right? Because that's that's a conflict, right? He has this conviction in his past, they know of the conviction, so they're not gonna put him or her in a scenario where they have to be you know what I mean because the employer is gonna do a background check, mm-hmm. and when the employer up on on face value hires him or her for a retail cash handling job, and then they do a, a background check, and then they find out that they have a conviction in this cash handling situation, that person is not gonna be able to keep that job, right? Now that person had a job, lost the job. What are they gonna do? They're gonna go back to what they know best, right? Which is which is starting the whole cycle again. And then if there's any other type of work that's that will allow them to to make a decent wage, i.e. the construction trade or whatever, again, that takes time, right? There's free trainings, there's on-the-job trainings that they can be a part of, but that's all that's time, right? And one thing that's always been interesting to me is uh, that employment question, or rather that incarceration question how one would answer that because I've seen so many situations where folks are just deterred by that. They wouldn't apply to jobs because they expect that, well, they're going to know about my past. I'm wondering how does one really prepare for that question? There's workshops that the Employment Work Centers have specifically geared to to this. I've sat in some of them and what they what they tend to do is just ask the job well ask the job seeker to when answering that question never reveal, one, what the conviction is, try to figure out and come up with a sales pitch to tell the employer either that I've done something in the past that I, you know, I made a mistake. It's basically just bringing the employer back to the skill set that you have. So if, I'm, if you're going for a cook position and they ask you, like, why is there this big gap, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll say something along the lines of, yeah, I have this gap because I made a mistake, but I have these, I have 17 years of cook cook um, experience. I know how to use um, a dual Bunsen burner, like whatever whatever the the language is of the cook position, so that the employer has to 
go back to what your skill set is and you reminding the employer this is my skill set don't worry about the gap that you know that's on my resume or whatever the case is and then hopefully that that jedi mind trick per se gets the employer to just remember that this individual is just here for an opportunity he's telling he's telling you what skills he has that um, makes him a good candidate for that opportunity and then they just hire them based on merit and not really focus on like what happened in this five-year gap but when it's done well it's done very effectively and you kind of really you really do forget about the um the gap or 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 the possible incarceration another thing the key about this whole taking the employer off of that gap is that you definitely don't want to say anything about incarceration or went to jail like those key words because the employer it's illegal for them to ask you what you did right mm -hmm. so once you say i was incarcerated the the whole point that they teach them is that once you say that you open this pandora's box that the employer is going to fill in the blank mm -hmm. right so you may have been incarcerated because you jumped the turnstile right and then you were supposed to go to to um court but you missed the court date and then you know and then like all those um domino effects made you have made you put you into a situation where you went you actually went to jail right it's something as small as that but once you say i was incarcerated now the bias of the employer depending on how the individual across the table looks he's already putting oh you went you were incarcerated let me let me fill in the blank of what you did not really knowing what the incarceration situation was because they're not allowed to ask that and then the only way they can find that out is once they hire you and they do the background check that's when they'll actually know what the what the actual thing is mm -hmm. but why would they why would they hire you when they've already put all these things in their head that like this is a menace to society when you all you actually did was just jump the turnstile and I, I think that's, you know, it sends a powerful message because if I were a job seeker in that position, I think that these workshops send a message that, one, I'm more than my conviction, mm -hmm. and two, I have this entire skill set that any kind of employer should actually be focusing on. So you uh, talked about some of the, the challenges within the system, uh, especially for uh, black men returning from incarceration and looking for employment. Can you share any success stories? So I visited both centers, like I've said before. I spent more time at the Brooklyn Workforce One Center, one, because it's it's closer to my actual office location, and then two, because it's, it's actually one of the centers that I manage, which is the Brooklyn Workforce One Center as a whole. So when I go out there, they have a week boot camp, what it's called, and basically it takes it, 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 I guess, breaks down the walls or the barriers of an actual recent released conviction or incarcerated individual. And then, so that's one day. And then um, another day is like kind of like a, like a breaking the ice in terms of like the, the individuals within the room, you know, letting them, letting them just share their stories not really if they feel like sharing their conviction they can but just kind of like sharing their stories so that they can all see that they're kind of all in the same boat all different shades and sizes and sexes and then that's another way to like build a rapport you know to let them let them see themselves again as humans again as instead of numbers and then they start going into the whole employment side. So then they'll look at the resume, make sure that the resume is up to date. Then they'll devote a whole day to the whole conviction question. And then they devote another day to like how all the information that you've gotten, you've, you've received in the prior days, they'll start putting into practice. So they'll have mock interviews. They'll either have 
the individuals from the account management or the sales sales team, meaning the people that go out and, and actually find the the job opportunities. And then the account managers, like I mentioned, are the people that try to connect the job opportunities with the actual job seekers and do the do the matching of skill sets. They'll give them actual hard evidence questions that the employers would ask at the employer interview. And if they know that an employer has group interviews, then that's what they'll have. They'll, they'll, they'll mimic everything that, that the job seeker potentially will see out in the field per se or in the employer interview. In those mock interviews, it's not as, with most mock interviews, you go, you speak with a quote unquote expert in, in the field, and the expert gives you feedback. But what the what the feedback that you're getting, and um, I noticed, is that they get it from their peers, right? All their peers who went through this whole workshop with them will be like, oh, you did that thing. Oh, you started talking about the conviction. Remember, they told you not to. So it's basically, according to the literature of employment works, when they get the feedback from their from their peers, it resonates with them better than than getting it from the expert. It's almost like thinking about like us as children hearing our parents tell us something versus a, a peer telling us the same thing that our parent would tell us. Mm -hmm. Which one which one will stick with us more? We'll be like, ah, oh, mom and dad is just getting on my back because they're mom and dad versus, you know, your peer telling you the same thing. You'd be like, oh, maybe, maybe you know, my peer is right. I do need to work on this or whatever. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of like success stories. And then at the end of the workshop or the, the week-long boot camp, per se, they have what's called a graduation. The Employment Works system feels that this cohort of people have not been, I guess, championed or, or have not been given kudos within their life per se yeah. so they so they provide this graduation as another reinforcement of you you did something good a lot of the times when if i make it through if i'm um, able to make it through the whole whole week-long workshop you see the change from the individual that came in on a monday to that friday and how the wall has actually been been broken down a funny story is i went I went some time ago, whatever, and sat in on a Monday, and I'm always, you know, dressed in a, in a coat and tie, so they can obviously see that I was I was somebody of of note, mm -hmm. but they but they assumed that I was also maybe like you know one of one of them per se, and that's what I want them to think. I don't want anybody to ever think that like you know me as an observer is is holier than thou or bigger than than the group or whatever. So when they were going around saying their spiel about like what they what they went through, whatever the case is. I introduced myself, I was like, I'm Musha Jean Baptiste, I'm a quality assurance manager for the city of New York. I'm just here observing the services and mostly observing the facilitators to see how the interaction is. And then one of them was like, wait, you're not one of us? And I was like, no, I'm one of you, but just I just haven't been incarcerated. And, you know, it also it also broke down um, the group because they was just like, wow, like, you know, this guy was just here amongst us making it seem like you know he's one of us but 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 still took the time to introduce himself and just made made everybody comfortable so like that was something that that i felt was was good and i mean it sounds transformative in many ways because i think that not only is this workshop or boot camp experiential where that you're going through these exercises and you're learning new skills but it also sounds like it's incredibly supportive so yeah. i love the aspect that peers are coaching each other as well as supporting each other and then you finish with really this symbol of a job well done a graduation yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm wondering, given given the challenges that there are, as well as some of the successes that you've seen within Employment Works, for someone that's not within that system, for someone that's at another agency that's working with black men that are coming back from incarceration and looking for employment and facing all of these challenges. I think the key is patience. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's obviously the key in, in, most, in most situations, whether it's incarceration or not. But for them, definitely it, it's patience because from what I've noticed, throughout my uh, employment history working within this area, they just have a history of being treated as a number. Mm-hmm. And when you treat somebody as a number, you don't, you don't really like listen or you don't really give the type of quantifying time that that individual needs you know, for, for whatever it is that they're facing. Some other reasons that those individuals probably don't even feel like whoever they're speaking to is can can empathize with them because of the fact that it's just sometimes it might be just such an extreme situation that they're going through. The best advice I can give is patience, but then in saying that, right, it's probably real difficult to be patient, right? Because of the fact that we're ta- like the whole point that we're talking about is the lack of resources. We hear it all the time, caseworkers who have like thousands of ca- you know of of caseloads. I don't even know how I can tell these individuals to be patient, but that's all I can do. So, you know, we've heard a lot about the challenges of the system as well as some successes. And I just want to take the opportunity to thank you, Mushi, for lending your expertise and speaking candidly about the system and how we can implement changes. So thank you. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. We appreciate you joining us. I'd like to thank our sponsors, our presenter, Mr. Mushi Jean-Baptiste, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work and to check out some of our resources, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we are changing the narrative together.